Our first scripture reading for today is from the book of Genesis. Uh, I'm going to be reading chapter 18, verses 18 through 19. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And our sermon text today is from the book of Micah. This is chapter 3. And I will be reading verses 1 through 12. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and then chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron? Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at the time, because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer for God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgressions, and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come to us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. So uh, we are continuing our study of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So, uh, you know, just as a bit of recap, uh, we started our series by just developing a a set of uh, general principles about how the Holy Spirit works in this world. And what we talked about was the Holy Spirit is involved with creation. Uh, particularly with bringing life and abundance into creation. And then a few weeks ago, we started shifting gears and we uh, went through some specific instances where we see the Holy Spirit working through individuals. Uh, We started uh, in Genesis with the story of Joseph. And remember, we talked about uh, how the Holy Spirit works through, of all things, administration and management. Uh, then we looked at uh, the story of Bezalel and Aholiab, uh, who uh, create the tabernacle and the uh, Ark of the Covenant. And so we looked at how uh, the Holy Spirit works through art and creativity. And now, today, we're going to study the work of the Holy Spirit in Micah, the prophet. So just a little bit of background here briefly. Micah was a prophet sometime in the 8th century B.C., And uh, if you're really into chronology and like to uh, kind of uh, see how things relate together, uh, this would have been roughly the time of Isaiah. Uh, They were uh, contemporaries. 
However, while um, Isaiah was from Jerusalem and was familiar with the kings and elites of Israel, Micah was an outsider. He was from a small rural town uh, southwest of Jerusalem. Now, I think Micah is going to be a a good case study for what we're looking at because Micah is going to show us how the Holy Spirit works through prophets. Okay, so that's why I picked Micah here. Uh, And furthermore, I really like this passage because what Micah is doing in this passage is he is contrasting the way the Holy Spirit works through himself with other illegitimate prophets who also claim the Holy Spirit. And I think this is helpful because that contrast is going to tell us something uh, about how the Holy Spirit functions and its proper role. So first, let me just say a few things about prophets in general, and then I'm going to speak to the passage here and Micah more specifically. So prophets were messengers who delivered uh, messages directly from God. And one of their unique features is they didn't hold like an official position. Uh, Usually a prophet only served for like a period of time. Uh, Sometimes it was a long period of time. Sometimes it was a short period of time. But um, in some cases they were priests. In some cases they were aristocrats, but they didn't have to be. So if you think about it, uh, the leaders of Israel, the kings, would have been a hereditary position. The priests were a hereditary position, but the prophets were not. Uh, there was no hereditary office. Uh, some did come from priestly backgrounds. Some were from nobility. Uh, but once they became prophets, they functioned outside of those systems. Uh, as outsiders, the point of a prophet was to be a check on the people in power. Uh, Think of it the way our our government is set up where it divides power uh, theoretically between the executive, legislative, and judicial branch. You know, we all learned that in school that they're supposed to balance each other out. In the same way, Israel had a similar system where they had uh, kings, priests, and prophets. And the prophets were to hold the priest and the kings in check. Uh, They have a license to critique the religious and political establishment. And their function was to limit abuses because of excesses of power. And it makes sense that the prophets arose about the time of the monarchy as Israel, before, uh, when it was becoming a more consolidated political and religious power. Uh, it, 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 you can tell uh, from different descriptions in the Bible that the, the, that the Bible, God is worried about the king having too much power. And so the prophets are necessary. Um, but here's the thing about the prophets, though. So, so we see the theory behind them. But um, I think if you lived during this time, uh, one thing you would have found about prophets were they were super annoying. Okay, They were always ready to expose problems, even when things seemed to be going well. Most often, especially when times were uh, going well. Uh, and, you know, the, here's the thing. Societies were no different uh, back then than they were today. There were always areas that that the people in charge, the people in power wanted to overlook. Uh, And often it was because they maybe derived some sort of benefit from those, or uh, maybe it was inconvenient because it would acknowledge uh, a wrong or would be embarrassing. So time and again, we ring of kings providing justifications for, for their breaches of the Torah. You know, they might do something that was a little, little off book, but they would justify it. Uh, and uh, as we know from Ecclesiastes, 
there's nothing new under the sun. But it was the prophet's job to call those wrongs out, to take the leaders to task, and uh, to remind them of their responsibilities under the Torah, under the law. Uh, Sometimes these violations of the Torah uh, were moral failings. Uh, Think of the prophet Nathan, right? So so David uh, rapes Bathsheba and kills her husband, and uh, Nathan calls him out on it. It's a moral failing. Uh, Other times it was the neglect of their duties or maybe the misuse or abuse of their power. So if we look at the passage today, we find that Micah is indeed uh, fulfilling his office of prophecy, a prophet, by speaking truth to power. Verse 1 has Micah addressing the heads of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel. But we don't see Micah calling them out for a moral failing or like worshiping idols or false gods or something like that. Instead, what Micah calls the leaders out for is corruption. In particular, they are exploiting the people they are charged with caring for in exchange for personal enrichment. Uh, Something that, you know, doesn't happen anymore, right? Uh, There's nothing new under the sun. Micah is very graphic in his painting of this picture. I mean, you know, the, the, the language is like horrifying here. The leaders tear the skin off the people. They rip their meat from their bones and they make them into a stew so they can eat it. Uh, later in, in verse 9 and 10, the passage says of the leaders, they build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with wrong. So, so here we have, you know, this picture of cannibalism, which, you know, is never pleasant. Uh, but this is often what prophets do. They often uh, resort to this really extreme imagery. This is what makes them like so annoying. There is nothing really nuanced uh, about their language. There's nothing mysterious or cryptic. It's like a blunt, it's hyperbolic. They're alarming, they're forceful, but above all, they're passionate. They very much believe in what they are, uh, their cause. And this is because the whole point of a prophet is to, uh, to call out something that has become commonplace, uh, something that's become part of the status quo. Uh, You know, the great trick of all exploitive power structures is to convince everyone that this is just the way the world works, or there's really no other alternative. It's sad, but, you know, that's just how it goes. Uh, The shocking imagery of the prophets is needed to expose the horror of these practices that people have accepted so readily as natural and inevitable. Uh, what we learn as we read the prophets is they cannot sit by and overlook uh, oppression. Uh, they can't see one of their fellow Israelites exploited and do nothing. They see injustice and they must call it out. They see indifference and they must break that sense of complacency. They give voice to those without voice and ensure that suffering is heard. Uh, They speak God's thoughts and they reveal God's heart and so demonstrate that God hears the cries of those who are deemed insignificant in this world. Uh, One of my favorite writers on the prophets uh, sums up the message of the prophets as expressing the pathos of God. So pathos is, uh, you know, it's one of these fancy, it's one of these Greek words that like, communications professors and rhetoric professors are always talking about. But really, it's just a fancy word for like pity or sadness. It's emotional. It's passionate. 
And the reason I think it's important to understand the message of the prophets as divine pathos is because what that means is God is personal. God's not a force. You know, uh, Chris talked about this a few weeks ago. You know, one of the problems with our view of the Holy Spirit is that we see it as a force. But if God has pathos, if he's upset, uh, he's, he's, he's not a force. He's a personality. He is a being who exists in relationship with his people. And he's involved in the lives of people. It means God is concerned with his people. He's upset when they are mistreated. He's, you know, other things. He's merciful when they're repented. And, and all sorts of the emotions that result from a relationship. He gets mad. He gets angry. He loves. He cares. He's devoted. All of those things that we, uh, all of those things that we experience in our relationships. Now, uh, I want to say, uh, you know, I'm sure that the use of emotions to describe God it is not quite accurate for a being such as God. Like, I'm quite sure this is uh, what we would call uh, anthropomorphic language and all that. And that, you know, these are this is an example of uh, when our words and concepts about God are inadequate. Uh, but here's what I think that's important, though, to even think about. Even though I know that the, this language, you know, God's such a higher being and he doesn't have emotions just like us, but I think it's important that they're expressed that way because ultimately what it communicates to us is God is concerned uh, with us. It's remarkable that God's concerned with us. You know, there, there's that psalm, you know, what does the psalmist say in Psalm chapter 8? What is man that you are mindful of him? You know, that's just an amazing thing uh, that, that God is a God who wants to be our God and he wants us to be our people. And so while we might not understand the exact nature of God's pathos, one thing we can say is that God is not apathetic. So as we read, we learn that what moves God in Micah is the corruption of these leaders. Uh, so we don't know the exact nature of the problem here, but most likely, you know, we can guess. It's the same old story of the powerful using their position to enrich themselves by exploiting those without power. Uh, you know, who knows uh, how this worked? This may have been through uh, the debts. It may have been through debts, the financial system. It may have been through the legal system. It may have been both, you know, any number of ways. And the interesting thing, as I read uh, the Old Testament, as I read the Torah, is that it has already anticipated these tendencies. There were laws in Israel to prevent these type of abuses. For example, if an Israelite fell into debt, his land had to remain within his family. Uh, it couldn't pass to another family. And after a certain period of time, it would be returned or restored to him. Therefore, debt could never be used as a weapon to permanently dispossess a person from, uh, from his land, his means of production. In addition, the justice system was tasked with ensuring that the poor and those without power were protected. The judges were to be advocates for the poor and those without power first. You know, what does the Bible say again and again in the Old Testament? You've got to uh, especially watch out for the widows, the orphans, the foreigners. Uh, those people were the ones without power, but the justice system in Israel was designed to protect those. Uh, and, and it makes sense. The Hebrews had experienced oppression and exploitation firsthand under the Egyptians. Their society was supposed to be different. 
And the laws of the Torah were supposed to reflect that. But of course, as we learn, the rulers of Micah's day had different practices. And so what we learn as we read the prophets is it's, this, it's the Holy Spirit that brings the prophets their message. You know, they're speaking truth to power. This comes from the Holy Spirit, this, this message from God. And often we read in the prophets, uh, they begin with a phrase like, the Spirit of the Lord came to. So in verse 8, we have here, Micah describes himself as filled with the Spirit of the Lord. You know, he even says this in contrast to the other false prophets he's talking about in uh, this passage. He is filled with the Spirit of the Lord. Uh, not only that, he is filled with power, justice, and might, specifically so he can call out the leaders of Israel for how they have distorted God's vision for society and ignored the responsibility that was entrusted to them as the result of their positions of power. Now, Micah makes this statement in contrast to the other prophets who also claim special access to God's revelation. And I think it's this contrast that's instructive to us because uh, both these prophets, these false prophets that Micah is talking about, and Micah both claim to speak for God. But Micah claims that he is different because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. So what is it about Micah that makes him different? In other words, how do we know when a divine message is spirit-inspired from one that is not? How do we separate true spirit-filled prophecy from false prophecy? Well, I think Micah answers that question here in these previous verses. Uh, First, the false prophets that Micah opposed lead the people astray by crying peace to those who enrich or feed them and declare war to the people who do not. In other words, false prophets tell those who pay them what they want to hear. Remember that the prophets were appointed to call out those people in power and to give voice to the powerless. The dynamic that Micah is describing here is exactly the opposite. You know, the people in power don't need to be told that they're doing a good job, right? They have the power. What they need is someone to tell them when they're not doing the right thing. So the lesson here is clear. To be careful, to, we need to be very careful of those who claim to speak for God but whose voices, whose words support the views of the powerful, who confirm those in charge, who lend support to their practices and uphold the status quo. The rich and the powerful are fine. They don't need the support of the prophets. A message from the Holy Spirit, though, necessarily will be hard. It will be challenging. It will be iconoclastic. It will be explosive. It brings comfort to those who are suffering but it challenges those who are prospering. Now, Micah believes that the ultimate outcome of these false prophets' insincerity is the loss of access to the word of God. Their words will be meaningless and their messages without content. Notice that Micah describes the methods by which these prophets derive their inspirations. The prophets will no longer receive visions or divinations. So they had been receiving visions or divinations previously. Now, those are actually technical terms. And they're technical terms for what we would think of an ancient magician or a soothsayer might do. 
He calls them seers and diviners, as in the type of people in the ancient world who would study smoke or the birds or that would cut open animals and look at their entrails, as such was a common practice. Uh, in other words, uh, you know, these supernatural or mystical ideas about how to communicate with the divine realm. But Micah believes himself to be different. He is filled with power. He is filled with the Holy Spirit and with justice and might. But what I want to argue here is that just as we talked about with Joseph, and just as we talked about with uh, last week with Bezalel and Aholibab, this isn't some kind of sudden endowment where God suddenly zaps Micah and fills him with the spirit. This isn't, you know, Keanu Reeves again in The Matrix who all of a sudden knows Kung Fu. Uh, just as Joseph had always had a talent for administration that he developed over a lifetime, Micah had been filled with a passion for justice. And it's the false prophets who tried to find inspiration in short-lived, ecstatic instances of divination, vision, and revelation. Micah's filling is not transitory. But when we see when we read filling here, it, it, it's instead pointing to its abundance, to the fact that it's overflowing in him. It always has been. Micah is relentlessly committed to justice, a concept that Micah does not believe you need supernatural inspiration to understand. Look at verse 1. He asks the question to the leaders. Is it not for you to know justice? We know what justice is. People should know this. We have this whole Torah to tell us that. What is remarkable about Micah is not some sort of supernatural, mysterious understanding of justice, but his courage and passion for justice. So that leads to a question, what do we mean by justice? And so, of course, they, you know, we got to go to the Hebrew, right? The Hebrew word is mishpat here. And the central idea of mishpat, so when we're talking about justice in Israel, uh, when we talk about justice in the Torah, the central idea is equity. The rules should apply to everyone. Let me read from Leviticus 24, 22. You shall have the same law... For the foreigner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. Uh, so, so when it says you shall have the same law, the word law here is mishpat. But here's what's interesting about this verse. Uh, the rationale for the law is that I am the Lord your God. In other words, it's the very character of God to be concerned for people who are powerless, people like this foreigner. In fact, that's why God says he chose Israel, not because they were great, but because they were the fewest of all the peoples. And what we learn throughout the, the, the Old Testament narrative is that God hears the cries of the oppressed. You know, the first time God is given a name is Hagar, you know, Hagar, the Egyptian slave woman who's not of the chosen line. And what does she call God? The God who sees God sees her oppression, and he cares about her. Even though uh, he has chosen Abraham and Sarah, God hears the cries of the oppressed. And, and so his people are always to remember that they are once oppressed and so have a duty to protect the vulnerable. Here's uh, Exodus 23, 9. Do not oppress a foreigner, for you yourself knows what it feels like to be foreigners, because you were foreigners in Egypt. The, the exodus was a necessary thing. The people had to uh, know what it was like to be oppressed so that they didn't do that stuff. Uh, 
you know, Ecclesiastes, again, there's nothing new under the sun. This is part of uh, the problem after the fall, is people coming in power and exploiting those who are not. Uh, Israel was supposed to be different. Because here's the thing, but, but this is the other thing about justice. And this is why I want us to kind of spend a little bit of time, not, not just inserting our own idea of justice, but, but talking about God's definition of justice. It's not just unfeeling mechanical illegalism. You know, we always want to think that because, you know, it's the Old Testament and Jesus comes and Paul and we're good Lutherans and so forth. But here's the thing. When we read about um, the, uh, the justice in the Old Testament, it is always linked with God's grace and mercy. Here's a great verse from Isaiah 30 that makes this point. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to be merciful to you. Why does he do that? For the Lord is a God of justice. So mercy and grace are part of justice. Now, the other thing about um, we learn from uh, this word mishpat is that justice is active. A judge issues a judgment or mishpat. The judge does so according to a standard of righteousness. So righteousness is the quality of the judge that leads to mishpat, but it is the, the, the ruling itself, it's the mishpat that is the justice. So for Micah to be filled with justice is to be active then in bringing equity into the world. Micah is moved by the poor and the powerless to action. Micah brings their plight before the Israelite leaders and he will not silently allow them to be exploited. Micah must stand up for them. He must call uh, the leaders out. Now, it's really hard to communicate how important this idea of justice is in the Old Testament. It's fundamental to God's project for his people. In fact, the whole point of calling the people out of Egypt was to give them the Torah so they could be a people set apart and show the nations what a society of neighborliness, of life and flourishing look like. You know, all the things that the Holy Spirit brings to creation. In fact, uh, that's why I chose this passage from Genesis 18, because I wanted you to see how far back this concept goes. So why does God call it Abraham? Why does he make the covenant with him? Why does he lead him on his strange mission? Uh, and, and it tells us in this verse, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the ways of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. That's why Abraham was called out. So what have we learned? What have we learned from all of this? To be a prophet we don't have to be a mystic and have supernatural mystical experiences. That was the false prophets. That's what Micah was calling out. We don't have to have great ability or learning. Everybody knows what justice is. What we do have to have then is a passion for justice. We have to have a passion for those who are without power, for those who are different, who are those who are left out. We have to care about them. We have to care about those who suffer. We have to care about those who hurt. We have to care about those who aren't winners. One of the distinctive features of the religion of the ancient Israelites was that their duty to God was not a private affair. Uh, it wasn't just about them going and offering the proper sacrifices. Micah shows us that the true prophet is inspired for the sake of others. Micah does none of this for himself. In fact, 
This is probably a bad thing to do if he's trying to get fame or fortune or anything. This was not the right way to go. It was the false prophets that were doing it for those kind of things. It's not about what the prophet wants, but about others. So if we are to be spirit-filled people, then it must be more than about our individual relationship with God. It must be about concern for our neighbor. Remember, when Jesus sums up the law, he refuses to, uh, uh, to break it down or, or consolidate it into just one statement. He, uh, he says we must love God and we must love our neighbor. He won't have those two divided. Jesus' whole ministry was about this. He challenged the leaders, but he ate and dined with the outcasts. He called out the corruption of the powerful, but he forgave sinners. He demanded that those who were left out have a seat at the table. He declared those who mourned were actually the ones blessed and promised that they would be comforted. He died the death so many of those had done, who had been uh, uh, crushed by oppression had died. From now on, in God's, in G, in God's kingdom, the last would be first and the first would be last. Freedom, life, abundance, all the things that the Holy Spirit is bringing about in the world was the message that Christ brought to the world. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so what does that mean for us? It means we need to listen to those among us whose hearts are moved by others, who are like God, who passionately feel concern, who feel outrage for love and pity for people. And these people are sometimes going to be annoying to us. They will challenge our ideas of what success looks like. Yet, they are revealing the heart of God to us. Because here's the thing. The Spirit is about life and flourishing, but not just for some, but for all. The goal of creation is for the Spirit to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. The Spirit is all-inclusive. And as the Spirit brings new creation, that means that the Spirit necessarily brings life and flourishing to all. So again, we see the church needs people who are administrators and management to bring order to chaos. The, children, the, the church needs artists and makers to show us the beauty and vision of the new creation to inspire us. But the church also needs prophets filled with the passion for others to ensure that no one is left out. We need those who hear their cries just as God hears their cries. And so once again, we see this vision of how uh, different parts of the body work together, all powered by the Spirit, to bring life and flourishing of the new creation into our world.